0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, and I have the amazing privilege to be here with Mike Studeman. Mike is an executive leader of major organizations with a geostrategic impact, national security expert, and intelligence professional with global expertise. He has a deep knowledge of the Indo-Pacific and is an inspiring leader able to maximize team performance and achieve results while sustaining high morale. Well, welcome, Mike. So excited to chat with you today on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks, Keith. I'm really honored to be a part of your podcast and look forward to your tough questions.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll do my best to give you some tough ones. So, Mike, you recently retired from the Navy and you were an admiral and had some pretty amazing positions in the Navy. You were the director of intelligence at the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command was one of your most recent positions. Is that correct?
1: It was. I ended my career after a year as the commander of the Office of Naval Intelligence, and there were a couple other hats that I had in that job. Uh, and then before that, three years out in Oahu with the Indo-Pacific Command, and I was one of the few lucky ones to have double J-2 Stints, combatant command after combatant command. So before into PICCOM, I was at Southcom in Miami, where I was a J2 uh, there. And before that, Cybercom. So I had actually three combatant commands in a row, a commander at the Joint Intelligence Center at Cybercom, and then two J2s. So a lot of purple time, a lot of joint time, as they would say.
0: That's really good. You know, I think I'll use this first question for the sake of my Coast Guard. Brothers and sisters, I talk a lot about every time I get the opportunity to talk to a someone who's had a lot of purple time, as they say, joint time, and has sat in the seat of the J two or the J three or even the J five, which is operations for the three and five is the strategic planning shops for those of you who don't know the numbers. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think I got those numbers right. He Perfect. gave me the thumbs up. So, but I always ask, it seems like a lot of times the Coast Guard, we don't always have a good planning process to be a part of the combatant command strategic planning cycle and i think a lot of times we miss some opportunities to take advantage of our really unique operating posture and and authorities to really be out there making a difference in the international playing field and i was curious if you had any thoughts about that or where we where that could be different or optimized
1: Yeah, I do think that some people are not aware of Coast Guard capabilities until like mid to late career in the military, but it's really essential that when we think about interagency work, particularly those in the maritime uh, field and, you know, in geographically far-flung areas, that the coordination needs to be very close. I found it was actually in SOUTHCOM and in INDOPACOM you know, we had a component so that's a subordinates element of the command. Command One of them was called the Joint Interagency Task Force South. Uh, and that was based out of Key West and dealt with a lot of interdiction on the high seas of narcotics uh, coming to the United States. And then, equivalent to that in Indopacon was the Joint Interagency Task Force West. And both of those were commanded by admirals, Coast Guard admirals. And they were often in meetings and VTCs. And I would just say that my experience was that the partnership was very close and we had a lot of good effects because of that. there are opportunities that only the Coast Guard could take advantage of. And there are things that the Coast Guard was learning that then provided opportunities for the military as we dealt with engagement with some of our partners. So I saw it when it was really working well, but you're probably right in general that it could be better in certain parts of the Defense Department.
0: Yeah, I, I think about that because there's some other, I think we do it well on things like the in the law enforcement realm and things like drug interdiction and migrant interdiction and some of those mission sets that the public might be more familiar fall under the, the Coast Guard's jurisdiction and different things. But I think there's some other opportunities that that the Coast Guard does really well that, that we could do to build partnerships and relationships to better protect the world economy, the world environment, like illegal unreported and unregulated fishing, for example, or what we call IUF, to protect the global fish stocks around the world. And things like crisis and emergency management, which we do for hurricane and other response and oil spills and things like that. And I think that's the thing that we in the Coast Guard, we do really well for the home front but well, we don't think about how we could actually use those to be a forward projecting force to better support the foreign and national security initiatives that the president puts out through the National Security Council. And I, I think about that a lot because I know internally we don't think about it. So I wonder how much it actually makes it up to the combatant commands through that strategic planning cycle.
1: It's an active uh, live wire for us in the in the combatant commands. The Coast Guard ships have, have been, you know, part of escorts through the Taiwan Strait with destroyers. Uh, they've been doing engagements in Oceania and in uh, Southeast Asia. They are on patrols in the Bering Sea and encounter things that we wouldn't have seen uh, through any other means. I remember a Coast Guard ship was the one that was able to report on a Russian exercise that was taking place uh, far off of, of a lot of our stock and and so their reporting was uh, essential for certain elements of what we were trying to understand they're doing live fire events and some other things and so i would tell you that in the combatant commands today the one that more active ones the only limitation to what the coast guard can do is usually capacity you know some of these spaces are gigantic pacom is you know 52 percent of the earth period stop right? And so it's a huge amount of, of space and people underestimate the distances. And so, you know, if you only have so many cutters and you're globally deployed and you have a lot of domestic priorities, you know, there are very few that you can really get around everywhere you want to. And so the issue becomes prioritization and choosing kind of the areas where they can have the most impact. That process works and and we've been doing it in uh, the combatant commands.
0: Thanks so much. And I'll use your old official title for this because I had a reason for those questions. And thanks, Admiral, for that. And I, I tell all you listeners that if you have a propensity towards the environment and protecting fish stocks, or if you care about protecting underserved and undeveloped countries and the way they handle tsunamis or even cyclones or what we would call hurricanes in our country, you see it how well that the different forces work together to get these resources out to these countries. And I myself went out to the Philippines to teach how to do crisis management or what we call incident command system out there to the Philippine Coast Guard, the Philippine National Police, and to their Customs and Border Enforcement, and also to the Malaysian Coast Guard. And so we do these things to help build our partnerships up and to support them. And so I think that's just a wonderful application as how you see it flow all the way up from the Coast Guard, all the way up through those different services at the combatant command level. And I just appreciate the way you just summarized that. And so that's why I was kind of leading into those questions. I I'd, I'd just love to hear how that was kind of communicated and we can always do better. So it was interesting because if there was some answers to do better, those would be great to take back as well.
1: Yeah. No, I think we're, we're doing well. Wish we had more Coast Guard brethren. It turns out you don't always have to be mounted. In other words, you don't always have to be on your ship and with your ship. There's great value, in fact, for smaller, medium sized countries when you go in manageable packets of, let's say, four Coasties and one or two others from the interagency to just have conversations in uh, some of these uh, states. So you're looking for the effects. The effects are building trust opening communications, transparency, and confidence uh, in one another that, you know, if you commit to something that you're good for your word, uh, that builds trust and being there counts. Uh, So you don't always have to have metal all the way around you, right? And have to worry about gas and steaming and things like that, there are ways that we can disaggregate for effects. And that's the new art of engagement that we're thinking through. And many other. the military services have been doing it. The Army is very good at what they call Pacific Pathways, where they moved troops around and and flew or shipped them uh, to various spots over the course of months in different places. But they weren't bringing tanks and everything else with them. It was, you know, the
0: soldiers in small packets. Yeah, wonderful thoughts. I, I think that, you know, that's what we like to put out there because so many of the younger generation, they think that the military is just this conceptual idea of what they see in the movies, but there's so many different things you can do in the military services. And so I think this is a great dialogue to show people that if you're thinking about what your future looks like, there's so many different opportunities to engage in the global world events that are going on around you. And if you feel helpless about what you're seeing in the world events, there's ways to engage in those world events in ways that you might not have ever thought of. And I, uh, you know, I asked you kind of what are other ways that you've seen that people can get more engaged in the world around them?
1: Yeah. I think first you need to yeah, study what's actually happening in the world and to use a combination of sources, never one source only. I'm an Intel analyst. You never, ever, Use one source. You don't go to CNN only or Fox News only or whatever. In fact, some of these things, take a look. There's this um, handy dandy reference sheet that's been done that shows you where bias exists. So you hard left, hard right, and then who's in the center. And so when you are actually learning the ropes and learning the world or certain regions, you need to be able to make sure that your sourcing is done correctly and you're getting some clean info because it's so easy to be misled these days and to come up with the wrong notions of what's really going on. So anyway, education and doing education right is first prerequisite. And building some skills, like if you really want to go end up being somebody in Europe that's going to deal with Russia challenges and, and others... Then, you know, put some Russian studies in, maybe a little bit of language. All those things look very attractive to any number of people and they build your credibility. If you ever wanted to go into government or if you wanted to go to State Department Foreign Service or if you wanted to go into the intelligence community, somebody that has some solid studies, a track record of it in the area where they're asking to go and they've done some specialty things. Maybe it's they've actually visited, right? They've had some travel. Maybe they've had some language, et cetera. Those kinds of things are the difference makers between who might get hired and who wouldn't get hired.
0: I like that a lot. I like looking at those different sources. A lot of people ask me from time to time what I use, and that's what I tell them. I go all over the place to look for my information. I don't just stop on one source and I definitely don't just go to the media or social media and that's where I get my information from. That might be where I'm started, but then I that's where I begin my digging. Might get notified of something there, but then the digging begins. So it's always a notification and then the digging for information for to be educated, like you said. So I appreciate it. Yeah, you know. I think there's
1: a tendency uh, to go ahead and just sort of skip to the shallows. We're all busy people; we don't have a lot of time. There's a fear of missing out. I got to check everything all at once to make sure that I know what's happening, particularly anything that's scintillating and sensational. And you know, a book was written about this called "The Shallows," and it demonstrated uh, the chemistry of how, if we approach how we absorb information that way, that the brain gets rewired, and it is only wired to be able to accept short, brief moments of inputs. You lose the capacity for immersion and deep study. In other words, you can't read a ding-ding book because you're only skimming the surface and now your brain thinks and is wired to only really uh, be comfortable with skimming things. Uh, so it's very dangerous. There's a chemical plastic reaction that happens inside your brain to the way we learn. And you see it left and right. You you probably notice yourself, sometimes it's hard to read beyond you know, a few pages or a chapter before you got to put the book down. You feel like you got to go on to something else. And so this is what the entire generations are now experiencing is a failure to be able to actually study well and really get into a topic and know it rather than sort of just uh, having some passing understanding of it.
0: That's really interesting that it can be trained into your brain to only superficially look at things. So what do you do about that? What habits have you created, Mike, to kind of get yourself ingrained into always going like that step further or looking deeper at things? First of all, solitude
1: is really an important element that most people don't understand about everything in life, from psychological health to uh, to leadership. You have to figure out a way to get yourself away from the freneticisms of the day. And they say that loneliness is the poverty of self, but that solitude is the richness of self. I think that was Mary Sarton. And I think Mary had something you know very valuable to say, and that is just because you're off on yourself, that doesn't mean that you're sort of isolated alone. In fact, that's time you're giving yourself to reset, do your digital detox, put your phone away, and think or interact with others or spend time in nature. Get that phone away. You can live without it for two or three hours. It's quite possible you can. But until we actually have the self-discipline and the curse to do that... You know, I'm afraid that it'll continue to shrink as something that is really vital for those who really want to educate themselves and really know about you know the issues. So solitude is a good way to do things. And I also think that you know you've got to train by reading. You have to to go through your foreign affairs magazine and read the entire article in one sitting. You should read one chapter all the way through you know, before you run off and do something else, right? Try it. These are the ways that you can train yourself against what seems to be, you know, that tide of uh, shallow learning that's happening.
0: Well, I really like those ideas. We hear a lot about, you know, leaders giving permission through their actions, through their voices. And here we have the former commanding officer of the Office of Naval Intelligence telling us, it's okay to go without your phone. I want you to think about that for a minute. This is someone who I'm sure had a lot of responsibilities tied to a phone for a lot of time saying it's okay to go without your phone. If he can say it's okay to go without his phone for a little while, I'm pretty sure most of us can go without our phones for a little while. So just let that sink in for a little bit and what that really means. Permission it came from and Mike's got something to add on to that.
1: I would just tell you, and I—I I was telling you, I wrote a, a leadership manuscript, and I decided that I would write down the lengths to which that I would have to go to get some of that, uh, you know, unbothered time, because everything uh, vies for your time all day long, and you can be a victim of it. You can be there in your office; the phone will ring. You can do the televideo. The meeting's going to occur, and. You got to figure out a way that you can get away from those things. I would go for the last 10 years, I would go into the stairwell of my buildings where I worked, commands, other commands, Pentagon didn't matter. And I would go up and down the steps to get some exercise and be able to have some breathing room to think through some things. Sometimes just prepare for the next thing if I had a talk or if I was uh, doing an engagement. Uh, and I had to be away from sort of the center where everybody could find me. I had to get lost. I had to make sure that nobody could find me, including my aides, and it would drive them nuts uh, sometimes. I would even sometimes go into the restroom stall, not in my own. If I had one, as I got more senior, usually you have, you know, a restroom near you. And it's a privilege. But I would actually go into another restroom somewhere in the bowels of the command and close the stall door to read that, you know, report or think through something for a solid five to ten minutes, because that's how important that undisturbed time was for me. Can you believe it?
0: That's a pretty amazing. I love that thought. You know, I used to do something similar on the stairs and I'll tell you, nobody looks for you on the stairs. They just don't. That's not a place that people look for you. <laughs> that, that's a that's a great thought. I really like that. They might now though. <laughs> they, if they listen to this, but you know, that's that's great. Let's talk more about this leadership manuscript. I I really was fascinated by it when you told me about it. So, tell the listeners about this manuscript and what motivated you to write it.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I had some terminal leave and then. You know, retired. And I, I thought, what an important transition project to be able to maybe encapsulate the things that I learned and to try to write them down. And my philosophy was that if I was now without rank or title, and I wasn't engaging regularly in sort of the acts of leadership that you do when you're in positions of authority, then maybe the book, if I wrote it, it would go into the wild and it could be free and accessible by anybody from young professionals to those who are maybe even you know, more experienced professionals, to be able to tap into whatever you know lessons that I had learned over time, my 35 years in the Navy. And so to me, that became sort of a passion project. And I had always been sending leadership notes to my teams uh, when I was in command and wasn't my staff position, senior staff positions, when I had hundreds, if not thousands of people working for me. And I always felt that It was the responsibility of a senior officer to coach and mentor and to do that as a regular part of our day, not something where you send somebody off to a leadership school for, you know, because you have a quota or some formal education. Those things are good, but it also needs to be embedded in sort of every day. You're setting the example, you're talking about things, you're really exploring issues. And then in my view, you need to talk about things that people don't tend to. I'm going to talk about ethics. Why would I talk about ethics when nobody's done something wrong? Because if you talk about it before, you can prevent somebody from making a mistake. And yet some of these issues, you know, people run away from. They don't want to talk about morals or ethics or, you know, even what we just talked about, solitude or any number of things, balance uh, in life. But we have to carve out time for it, and the senior officers need to help their people in that way. This manuscript uh, is a way to sort of compile many of the things that I previously shared over the course of all those leadership notes. But I also added uh, personal stories, and I felt like I really had to make myself vulnerable to truly communicate uh, the, the the meaning of some of the leadership traits that I talk about. So anyway, we'll see if it goes anywhere. I'm I'm exploring publishers right now. It's hard to break into that business, but I'm going to give it a college try.
0: I hope you do, and hopefully, we can reach somebody that maybe can reach somebody or or something like that. And you said something to me when we were talking about your manuscript offline before we even recording the podcast that you wanted to give back to be part of the active leadership school that is life. That just really resonated with me the way you said that. And you were talking about how so many people don't take the time Truly share their knowledge. They just, you know, they move on. They have they've learned all these things, but then they just don't give back. Well, this podcast is about servant leadership. And so that quote just resonated with me. And I had this image in my mind of these pro athletes that go out there and they don't ever train their replacement. They're like, look, I'm gonna live my career. I'm gonna do what I do. I'm gonna be as good as I can until I it's time for me to move on. And then it's on you. You figure it out, you do what you do, but I'm not helping you. And and I thought I always think when I see that, it's like, what a horrible way to live life. Like, you got to set time to be in your position. Us in the military, we're, we're pretty much a shelf life. And, you know, if we're there for the team, we want that team to outlive us. We want that organization, that unit to outlive us. That's a servant leadership mindset. And the way you put that to give back to the active leadership school that is life that's a legacy. That's something that's going to outlive you. And the other thing that you said about these things is that you wanted them to create dialogue and discussions and maybe even divisions that would have people talking so that they would actually discuss them more. And what I've learned in my doctorate that I just successfully completed my defense of, and I'm so excited, is that it's when people actually they live those experiences and they tie them back to their prior knowledge through those discussions and dialogue and even divisions even that's when they really learn them and so that's when those live those leadership things become their own and so i just thought what a way to do it and any other thoughts on on what those things mean to you
1: well, what you're talking about is empowerment. And it's about ensuring that everyone around you is equipped with the tools and the insights and the mindset so that they can be successful in their own right. And everyone should be taking a look and going, you know, I'm going to make the people around me way more successful earlier than maybe I ever was. And you realize that all of our big missions or our objectives in life are are based on how well the team is able to move out together. And teamwork is based on trust. And trust comes from a sense that somebody to your left and right cares about you, is willing to do things uh, for you. So you look around and, and today you take a look at dog-eat-dog politics, zero, some kinds of things. That's actually not the way you move any mission forward, it's not the way you move society forward. It comes with actually compromise. It comes from trust and transparent and candid conversations. And it comes from building up a sense that you have a higher calling and that you're going to have to work together to be able to make something work. And we have some really big challenges out there. So my view is that any leader out there should in fact be teaching the basic characteristics of what it takes to have a team successfully surmount a challenge. And none of it's easy. But the worst thing is when everybody feels like they're on independent operations and they're all alone and that nobody really has got their back, right? That produces fear. And when you have fear spore in an organization... That's when you'll start seeing behavior problems and things spiraling out of control. So you need to get ahead of it. And getting ahead of it means that you got to have preventative talk and you got to open up these things for dialogue. And then it generates goodness. And normally it generates a sense of for people that they are going to pick their best selves to then engage and not reduce themselves to allowing their worst selves to show up. And that can go either way. You can inspire people to be on their best side with their angels, or you can do things and guess what? It's the devil on the other shoulder and that whispering may grow louder over time. So you really have to get ahead of it. I say that everything is about climate in an organization and that the leaders are responsible for shaping that climate. And nobody will tell you that your senior uh, bosses, they'll give you tasks, they'll give you a mission, but they won't tell you, hey, by the way, Mike, you should be spending 10 hours this week ensuring that your climate doesn't go south on you. This is something that every leader learns slowly, gradually. But I'll tell you, I put a lot of time in my senior positions ensuring that the first thing that I do is set the climate so that it's right. To create that trust, the sense of, you know, shared mission, et cetera, has a lot of moving parts to it. But if you don't have the climate right, everything is harder. If you get the climate right, everything is easier. Fact
0: of life. So what's that look like getting the climate right?
1: The first responsibility is to be direct with your your folks. So they know that when you've talked to them, that there aren't any artifices, there aren't things that you're holding back. You have to have an honest conversation. And sometimes those are really hard conversations. When I got to the Office of Naval Intelligence, I had to tell them that I loved them to death. I'd worked there a couple of times before. I said, but your ship is listing. And people looked at me and said, what? what the commander, the two-star admiral is telling us that our ship is listing? And I said, yeah, your ship is listing. Your reputation is taking some hits. You write to too many things that are long, drawn out. People don't have time for it. They need something that's more executive. And frankly, you default to the longer, more detailed. There's room for that. You need that for some certain customers, but you also you have to realize that the executives need some, you know, shorter pieces of work that that really have more sweep to them. And people aren't even putting your materials in their read books because they're not suitable. For daily consumption, your ship is listing. We can do something about this team, but you ought to know the feedback from the field. And, you know, that's bad news, right? On the other hand, it's like, okay, finally somebody told me the truth and I know what I need to work on. You know, boss, how do you want me to proceed? I got three priorities. Which one do you pick? And then you can kind of work that out. But yeah, a lot of this comes from how you carry yourself as a leader and whether or not you truly have others' interests in mind. Do you get to know people? Like in your first week in a job, uh, Keith, what are you going to do? Are you you going to start working on the inbox? Or are you going to go and spend time, you know, without an end date or end time, to go talk to somebody in the front office, or these other people that are working hard in the loading dock, right? Do you walk to the loading dock on your second day at work in a big institution? and talk to the folks that they can't do you any good right then and there. But would you do that to get to know all the people that make the mission go around? If you are somebody who's focused on developing the right climate, uh, you're going to be picking lots of different places where you want to go to early on because you want to get to know what's going on. You want to dive down into those levels, and you want people to see and hear you and get to know you and understand kind of the big flick uh, and have an opportunity to express themselves because they want to get something off their chest. Hey, hey boss, uh, great to see you. But you know what? In 10 years, we've not fixed this problem. Can you do something about it? You're not going to get that if you're going to be in your ivory tower and just kind of having people come to you in your, in your grand office. Uh, so anyway, what you choose to do in your first couple of weeks in a new job. Says everything about the kind of leader that you really are.
0: Those were some great examples. I I really liked it. And I it got me thinking too. And uh, you know, some things I do really well, and some things I I need to work on. So I I like that because that was a good set of list. And obviously, that's not a checklist, right? Those are good ideas, but there's more things that you can think of. So don't treat that as a checklist. Think of those are things to inspire ideas to get you thinking about your environment, how to approach your climate. So obviously, think about your place intentionally. I like that. One of the things that you allude to a lot and you think about is the power of your voice. And it's apparent that you're very mindful of that and that you use it well to inspire the people around you. And someone who's had many command positions for over a decade in your career, you know, did you naturally find your voice or did it take time?
1: No, I found that I'm not very good at subterfuge or indirectness or pretending I'm somebody I'm not I found that authenticity is the most one of the most important traits you have to be you if you try to kind of be something else people can uh, smell a fake from a mile away and they think that they can't trust you because they don't know you and so part of it is just knowing yourself and knowing you know what I'm Good at this, I'm not good at that. And I-, I need to do this and following your instincts, but always channeling it through the real you, right? And to be open. Some people are very standoffish. So I've never figured it out. They try to keep some distance. They want to maintain some sort of mystique. I was never part of that. I didn't subscribe to that philosophy that somehow you should show distance. I- I wanted to really get to know people. I, I wanted, I was curious about them. Uh, they're doing the real work uh, everywhere I went. I wanted to know more of how they were doing their work and how I could help them. And I, I wanted to give them sort of a, a perspective that maybe they would never see because they're in the line. But, you know, I've been out engaging uh, Chief of Naval Operations or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or Combat Command or foreign partners. And so there's plenty that you can bring back in, particularly when it comes to the praise to say, you know what? I was talking to this particular senior leader in the Ministry of National Defense in the Philippines, and they loved that product that you did on the South China Sea, which then was down at the REL level, the releasable level. They just ate that up. You know what kind of supercharging that does when you get that close, you know, that feedback loop to them, you've won them over for a very long time if they can understand the impact of their work. And that comes from taking the time to be able to engage uh, at that level. Sometimes you do it through email or announcement systems or during town halls or, you know, during other things, but it's really important to interact with your people on a human level where you're truly who you are.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate those thoughts. And you don't shy away from tough issues either. And I think a lot of people are afraid to about their voice and how it could be perceived in today's day and age of, of cancel culture. And you know, how, you know, they, there's a lot of tough issues. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when they, they don't say anything, when they choose to silence their voice, it's still an act of using your voice and especially in the realm of servant leadership, our voice is. Such a hallmark of who we are that people look to the leaders to see, you know, which way they're signaling, which way they're pointing, you know, how are they using their voice. And so, how do you safeguard your voice? How do you prepare your mind to think about these tough issues and then also signal to the people around you how to talk about, position yourself and to? consider these tough issues in a way that's going to lead to positive relationships, positive change, and that collaboration and compromise that you talk about?
1: Yeah, it depends on the issue. It's a really good question, actually, because uh, sometimes you have an ability to kind of get into a topic and you may be able to Make some really insightful points and you can really help out your team. And sometimes you're not fully prepared and you need to do more homework. Let me give you a couple of examples. We had issues of sexual harassment in the Austin Naval Intelligence. It occurs, you know, everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in a private corporation or, you know, any group of people and there will be the natural tensions between, you know, men and women, attractiveness and not. And uh, so you have to deal with those kinds of things. You know, I had a lot of experience in dealing with with uh, some kinds of behaviors that were offensive to others while the offending party didn't quite know or they weren't sensitive to the fact that something's offensive. And I could have launched in there, but I didn't because I knew uh, at the Austin Neal Intelligence, I needed to know what women had experienced. And I wanted to understand what was happening locally, what the track history was. So I invited a number of, you know, females, civilians and military, mainly female civilians to tell me their experiences. And first, they didn't want to talk uh, very much. And we gradually, you know, built up that trust. And I, I guess I was deemed worthy to kind of really know what had happened in some cases and it redefined for me how i needed to talk to o and i when you know i held multiple town halls and i was describing situations uh, and comments and things like that and it was interesting we're in the town hall and i gave a situation scenario i wanted to go through scenarios and say hey was this, is this is this offensive or is it acceptable and it turns out there were different opinions about which which scenarios were offensive and which ones were not offensive and many of the women found something offensive and some men are like, what's the big deal? And we had to talk through it to say, you may not realize, but somebody else could be deeply offended by that for the following reasons here. And so anyway, what it turned out to be was the women sensitized me to things that allowed me then sensitize the group on mass with regard to really our own culture and things that had happened within our own culture that didn't come from me just sort of, Hey, let's call, let's have a meeting. It came from doing more research. And the same is true of, you know, black African-American issues. I've had to talk to folks about their experience about that before writing or saying something. January 6th happened when I was in the Indo-Pacific. And, you know, that night I wrote to my entire J2 organization, which was uh, probably a thousand people all told, and I shared with them how uh, they must be feeling to watch uh, the country go through this with these people that stormed the Capitol. And I talked about this, and I talked about you know uh, what our nation actually needs to cherish and honor. And I didn't need any additional input there. What I needed to do was to quickly hop on that and to share in the agony that we were feeling about what was happening and so some things you need to do uh speedier than others but where you do have time you should do your research to make sure you're truly in the right place to then be the educator or the reality definer for those around you
0: yeah i really like that example of how you empowered the people around you to help be part of the solution too and to talk through that and to give them their voice and And to really face that with curiosity to say, hey, look, maybe I don't have all the right answers here or maybe, I, you know, I can learn something from here because I think there's some value in that and see what those voices are. And I think there's a lot for us to learn on some of these tough issues so that we can have a better answer. And we can realize that in a lot of these cases that the fear is driving these this polarization and then when we can meet each other with curiosity to see what we're so afraid of we can actually come to a better place of compromise because we can lessen that fear we can lessen that anxiety which leads to angst and hatred and animosity and then that's when could lead to greater compromise and collaboration and so you know some of the things they teach us in all these team building we've had over the years but we just don't apply it in the right setting you know to talk about it. And so it's just interesting that we're so apt to apply it in these high stress situations and normally, but we then we don't take it to high stress when it when it matters in these situations. So I I, I find it a uh, very applicable.
1: Yeah, you know, the country is in a very tough spot right now. And we have a hard time getting unity on any one issue, it seems. So we need more people who can bridge the gap and that comes from the courage uh, to be able to reach out and create the bridge works and to open up the channels of communication that then allow for deeper understanding or a minimum empathy with regard to you know how other people think or their own experiences and we're we're taking the shortcuts we're not taking the time and we're falling back on our own corners and it's become you know truly adversarial and it's all amplified by you know social media that tends to uh, further divide us. In fact, major state powers are in there. Russia, China, they have a proven track record of trying to amplify our differences and trying to drive up fear and and emotions. And so we need some self-discipline in all this. And we need leaders that can figure out a way to work together. If leadership becomes a scarce resource in this country, true good leadership all is lost. There is no way we can then extrapolate uh, what we do to lead people in our country to how we need to lead around the world. So I believe we're in a leadership crisis. I believe we have a deficit of good leadership. And any leader out there that has something to contribute uh, should be doing it as much as they can and not just in their own circle. one more reason why I decided to try to get this manuscript uh, about leadership out into the into the world.
0: Well, that's, that's some great powerful thoughts. And I'll use that to, for the challenge of this episode to think about how you're using your voice right now. Think about, are you using your voice to create division and, and to fuel fires or are you using it to be empathetic, to think with more curiosity, to think about how you can bridge the gaps or how you can be a, a bridge builder between issues, how you can meet those issues with thoughtfulness and how you can think about how to dampen the fears of others and how you can bring people together and think about those issues in a way that will bring compromise and collaboration and how you can use your voice to be methodical and thoughtful as you look at these issues that are so critical to our nation and to the world, as the, the world looks at how to combat issues that bring about scarce resources and or bring about food shortages and how we attack all these different issues as other nations attack other nations and how those implications are catastrophic to, you know, people that have no say in what's happening to them. So I think that as we look at those things, the leadership crisis that Mike's talking about is very real. And it's not just abstract and out there. It's in front of all of us. So how we use our voice matters. So think about it and make a choice to use your voice in a more intentional manner. Well, Mike, uh, go ahead because I do think that most people don't
1: connect what's happening domestically with what's happening internationally. And we have a problem that the United States is no longer seen as the shining city on the hill, where not only do we have a good form of governance, but that it was effective and efficient in trying to be able to solve the problems uh, internally to the United States and therefore is also able to help solve global challenges. And we have some very scary developments the chinese are casting themselves and their governance model as much better than the you know the electoral democracy model that you know we have and they are pumping the world with propaganda and political work that essentially says you know united states is uh, on its way out it's on its decline really if you want to have a country that knows how to make decisions can make sound decisions, can do them quickly and effectively, we're it. We are your source. If you want to develop, if you want to be prosperous, if you want to be connected, if you want modernity, then put your lot in with the Chinese. If you want chaos, polarization, and do-nothingness, you know, stick around with the Americans. They'll show you the way there, but it's on the way down. And most Americans don't even realize that we have this massive competition, this different ideology that is every bit as important in the 21st century as the Soviet Union versus the West was in the 20th century. People just can't imagine that there's something more important than culture wars. And there is. The world is being transformed by totalitarian systems or autocracies into something different while we you know, fight all of our internal squabbles uh, here, and this is the problem. So we need to demonstrate leadership internal to our country. We need to ensure we have a view towards what hap- what is happening in the globe, and then we need to be able to shape that and be a good example of how to get things done. And right now, I'm worried that we're not, and there's no sign that we can with the kind of people that we have in power these days
0: yeah it's a very valid point and I think as we watch uh round four of of elections on the speaker of the house it's very easy to see how that narrative is playing out so fruitfully so uh, as chaos ensues in that realm so there's there's many other examples but that's definitely very apparent in that one and And as we think about those things, how we use our voices to amplify those messages or or to give them no no prudence whatsoever, it matters as well. It matters how we share those things. It matters how we attack one another. It matters about how we treat one another. And that's what servant leadership is all about. It's about taking the time to thoughtfully think about how we use our voice. What do we do with this? Are we pushing people apart? Are we taking care of the people around us? Are we taking care of the, the people that we care about as a nation? Are we positioning ourselves so that we can take care of the world? And if we're not, then we're not using our voice in a credible way. Well, Mike, it's been a fantastic episode. Any closing thoughts to wrap us up today?
1: I would say we never got on the issue of character, but character, who you are at your core and how you express that when you're in a leadership position is absolutely vital. You know, the Greeks used to say, you know, character is destiny. You know, if you have character, nothing else matters. If you don't have character, nothing else matters. And uh, this is really true of the people that you see in positions. Those with high character are ones who are actually good for a company, good for a unit, good for a division, and good for America. Those whose character is less than what it needs to be are ones who are the most dangerous in our country today, and they're going to be dangerous in a company, in a unit, anywhere. And so it all comes, circles back to the idea of who are you picking to be on your left and right or above you and below you? And this has to be the first element of discernment. If you want a good team that's going to do something and succeed in the world, you must take a look at people. You must elect those that actually have solid character and when you invite those in who don't, this is the beginning of the decline and we have so many people of questionable character in politics these days you can see the decline that it's causing in our country. So just a point of consideration is people go to the polls you know in the next year or two and uh, decide who they want
0: you know running their county, their state or their country. Uh, Thanks so much for those thoughts. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks all of you for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. And I hope you've been edified because I've been edified. And thanks so much for joining us, Mike. And all of you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks, Keith. Honored to be here.